There it is. Do you have any idea what you're listening to? London Philharmonic? It's Venus. Huh? Venus. Why not? We bounced signals off the moon's surface. There's no reason that Venus shouldn't radiate impulses. I don't mean the static. Can't you hear it? The other thing? What other thing? Listen to it, Paul. Listen to the voice. Hello and welcome to Media Geek. This is your weekly look at a world of grassroots and independent media and a critical look at our media environment. My name is Paul Reesmanel. I'm your host. Producer Drew Jerico is at the controls. On today's program, documenting, documenting the prehistory of the internet. We'll be talking to filmmaker Jason Scott, who is creating a documentary on bulletin board systems. In addition to being the guy behind text files... Com. We'll find out what all that is about in just a moment. And, of course, we'll catch you up with what's going on in our media environment with some Media Geek News. Do stay tuned. And online, we should have... Jason Scott. Hi, Jason. Are you there? Hello there. Hi. Don't mind my weirdness. Right. I'm currently at an event called ShmooCon, which is kind of a technology conference in Washington, D.C., of all places. Just asked to show up, and I'm here, and uh, so I'm a little bit frazzled, but nothing going on. I'm not a speaker or anything. Okay. So that's so I'm in Washington, D.C. instead of my usual Boston, Massachusetts. Oh, you're there in Washington with uh, with at the FCC and all the other great regulators. Yeah, somewhere nearby. I haven't seen them yet. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on the program, Jason. Now, now you are uh, you have a website called textfiles.com. <clears throat> yes, that's how most people know me these days, I guess. Um, that's a that's basically a um, collection of what I call BBS era text files, and what I mean by that, since text is just text, is that when bulletin board systems were big in the late 70s, mid-80s, early 90s, um, people would write files, informative files, messages, uh, stories, and they'd put them on these BBSs. But because of the nature of BBSs, uh, they, they weren't networked like people expect now. So people would, um, you know, um, put it on one bulletin board system, and then it would disappear forever. So I, I used to go around as a kid and collect them. Mm-hmm. And I built up quite a collection. And when, I guess, oh, what, late 80s, not late 80s, uh, late 90s, I thought, you know, I wonder whatever happened to my favorite PBS. And I went and looked it up on uh, Alta Vista at the time, and nothing, not a hit, nothing. And I thought, that's not right. So I start looking up other names, nothing, absolutely nothing. And I thought, but bulletin board systems, they were the thing before people really started using the Internet for any amount. But there's no record. So I just went to my uh, old disks, collected a whole bunch of old files, found out textfiles.com was not registered, registered it, and started putting it up. And I got an almost immediate reaction. You know, and almost like, oh, my God, somebody remembers, you know, from a lot of people. And that success has grown 
in the past, I guess it's getting up on eight years now, um, people just come to it. Now, some people come to it simply because there's now so many files on there, you know, something upwards of 80,000, that they just match it. Like my number one referring um, come from uh, Google searches. So people are just looking for weird stuff, and well, I match because I've got so much text. But a lot of other people are just trying to find old history, and I have many people who say, you have a copy of a file I wrote that mm-hmm. I don't have. And I'm like, well, now you have it. <laughs> That's the it. whole point. Well, so maybe to fill in some gas for people who are maybe aren't quite as old or aren't quite as geeky as you and I, um, <laughs> what is a BBS? What is a Bolton board system? On its most fundamental level, the Bolton board system, as we're describing it, is a computer that was hooked up via a modem to telephone lines that other people using computers with modem could connect to and leave messages one at a time um, on message bases, and um, when they hung up, other people could call. So you were talking maybe on an unbelievably busy one, maybe 20 or 30 um, you know, calls a day, but nothing beyond that. So you ended up with, um, um, what do you call it, um, you know, a small group of people. What we think of as a, uh, uh, what would be like a, a click at best, but at the time, was an unbelievable thing that all these people could connect and leave messages. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a powerful idea. You connect to a machine, you leave a message, and then anyone else who connects can read your message. And people who don't know each other make connections that way. So it was, it was a hit from like the first day that it, it happened in the late seventies. Um, people so this just loved this thing. This is primarily pre-internet, or at least pre-public internet, before the public could really uh, get on the internet. And so in the late 70s and, and the 1980s, then, and it all basically occurred over the basic phone lines with people and their modems. Exactly. I mean, the thing that was um, so important to me about bulletin board systems as a medium anyway was that, you know, um, the natural thing to do when a new technology comes out is want to control it, commercialize it, make it something useful for government, military. It's, it's a natural thing because it, it, it's the startup costs. And what happens is, is that when you do that, you, you get a lot of things done in, in some ways. But in other ways, human beings don't use them. They don't just use this technology. And it's not until the technology drops in the lap of people that you start to see. I mean, you know, television dates back to 1937, but it was a military thing. Nobody used it. And it was when it came in the 50s and suddenly it was in everyone's living room and they can purchase it and, and that's when it starts to take off and that's when you start seeing interesting things happening and and much in the same way the internet existed but it existed specifically for this military slash scientific purpose and it wasn't going to grow beyond that and what these bulletin board systems did in parallel was train an entire generation of people on what it was like to be online mm-hmm. just for the sake of being online not because it was your job or because it you know uh something that you uh, were required to do for an experiment. And when I was a kid in the 80s, I, I would visit many BBSs using my Commodore 64 and Texas Instruments TN-99 computer. I lived in New Jersey at that time, and, and most of the bulletin boards I would visit were, were, were local, or relatively local, within uh, reach of a local phone call so that my parents you know, wouldn't throw me out of the house for running up their long-distance phone calls, right? And I guess, right. so there's, in many ways, these were, these were often local phenomenons, but I also remember that uh, they were often especially bulletin boards. There were people who would run one specifically, say, for ham radio enthusiasts, or people who are um, enthusiasts of sci-fi culture, something like that. Right. I actually draw parallels between bulletin board systems and things like LiveJournal, because what happens is, is like even though on the Internet you can go anywhere 
Um, if you go into a live journal, and I've done this for fun, go into a live journal of somebody who has their little set of friends, and they're, they're writing stuff out publicly about their boyfriends, and if you start commenting, they go, who the heck are you? Right. Get, get out. What are you doing here? You have no right to be here. Because they are, you know, because the natural thing is to say, well, I know all these people. They're all nearby. They're all my friends. This one's moved away, and thank goodness there's an Internet, and I can communicate with them very quickly. But these are my little friends. And with bulletin board systems, you know, like anything else, there were certainly commercial bulletin boards, and there were massive bulletin boards that were basically technological marvels that they worked as well as they did. But the vast, vast majority, hundreds of thousands of them, were basically somebody in their house had an extra phone line or not an extra phone line, with a bulletin board system running on it for their friends to connect to and trade information on. And very few bulletin boards became, quote-unquote, a hit, you know, a, a, a nationwide phenomenon that everyone was calling from all over. When you connected and you said, hey, everybody, I'm going to be down at the Rat. I'm going to go down to, you know, the Rat and have a pizza. Everyone would know that the Rat was a term for this one pizza parlor. You wouldn't even have to say it because everyone knew because they were all local. Mm-hmm. And that locality... Um, is, believe it or not, when I talk to people, the number one thing they miss. Mm-hmm. They actually miss the fact that they post, if you post on, you know, what, a Half-Life 2 forum, you, you can't, nobody's going to be any, they're not going to have anything beyond Half-Life 2 uh, in common with you, mm-hmm. uh, where you could just say something. That, you know, you can't say, hey, everyone, you know, because Half-Life 2 is now down at this uh cyber cafe, well, they're all going to go, well, big deal. I'm in Canada. I can't help you. Right, right. So that's the thing they missed. That was a very, yeah, the locality of it was very, very unique. And it was it was very grassroots, too. I mean, because it was just about anybody who had a had a computer, which wasn't a lot of people, but as computers got less expensive during the 80s and a phone line to spare, you, you could set one up. And I, and I remember, often the software was free. Yes, I mean there were there were four pay uh, versions, but yeah, what happened was was that, and I mean you can actually trace the lineages. And it was passed around a lot. So, for instance, RBBS begets a lot of other um, software programs in the eighties, and there's one called World War Four WWIV that gave birth to basically twenty other ones that used it as an inspiration to kind of build. Some of them were complete rewrites, but some of them were not at all, and people could just. You know, they would have an extra phone line because they were trying to communicate with other places, and one day they would say, well, why can't I do this? Mm-hmm. How hard would it be? And they would set something up, and they'd give it a funny name, and they'd either be really good at it or they'd be out of it within a week. You and, know? of course, it, unlike cell phones, you didn't pay for the incoming calls. You just paid to have the line there in the first place. So that was precisely why some of them did it. I mean, some of them did it because it's like, well, I'm sick of going out and collecting files. I'll just sit here, and everyone else will call me and give me the files. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, a lot of that, those urges are just so innate that you see them in websites and mm-hmm. people who do web mastering and building their little sites uh, because it's the same urges, this, 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 this need to, like, say, well, if I open up my place in a limited fashion, you know, my phone line, look what comes to me. All this interesting stuff happens, you know, just for opening up my, my, uh, my phone line and my computer to this. So, yeah, I mean... Grassroots is definitely the vast majority of where this came from, which was what was so neat about um, when the Internet finally fell into people's hands in some good amount by the mid-'90s, where it wasn't just people who were geeks. was the fact, you know, because some people decry the growth of the Internet from being mostly academic. To the, but I love that stuff. I think LiveJournal is a great thing. I think it's, it's this record of an entire generation thoughts 
I mean, you can actually see across all of these little... Because basically, LiveJournal is just a bulletin board system that's about the sysop. Mm-hmm. So you end and up... And a sysop is a system operator. Yes. Uh, my, uh, my, 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 uh, my projects are always an interesting problem because it's, it's a matter of where do you... Where do you draw the line in defining terms? That's right, that's right. I mean, because you tell people, well, I have a modem, which is actually what, a, a modulator, demodulator. Right. And then they're like, what? Um, I, what I try to do in all of my work is throw out as much information as possible to people, just overload them and be treated like an atlas. My, my works tend to be like atlases, maps, or encyclopedias <laughs> more than novels or paragraphs. You know, go in here and just browse for a while. And I get that from a lot. I mean... Textfiles.com sees about 200 to 300,000 people a month. And a lot of people just come on for one file. My num- the number one reason why people visit um, Textfiles.com is to download ASCII middle fingers. <laughs> and these are things that kids used to trade back in the 1980s, right? Made yeah. out of, and when you say ASCII, it's made out of just text because uh, for a lot of uh, BBSs, uh, graphics were out of the question. It was just right. a matter of trading text is- back and forth. Right. The scary part is is that what they tend to be is that they're 1980s renditions of 1960s and 1970s text drawings. <laughs> so this thing has been passed on 30, 40 years. And it's kind of fun sometimes to track down the original author. I've been able to do that in some cases with some more obscure files and be like, hey, it's been 30 years. Look where it is now. <laughs> it was like, on some vax machine that some scientist made in the <laughs> 1960s. <laughs> it, is, it, is, it is amazing to me how much of that persists. You know, the, the people think, you know, I don't know. They, they, the myth is, right, that paper disintegrates immediately. It doesn't. It can last for a hundred year, hundreds of years, actually, without disintegrating. And digital stuff, it doesn't disappear. It, it's so easy to make an exact duplicate that it, oftentimes they do. And people and it, hold on to it. And they do, because it, it's painless. I mean, textiles.com, when I started out, uh, grew to about a gig. And I thought I was just screwed. And it's sitting on a 200-gig hard drive now. <laughs> right. So, I, I mean, if you compress it, even it's grown to the main text file site is about 1.8 gigabytes of text. Well, that compresses down to about 700 megabytes, you know, just about a CD. And that's a huge archive. I mean, it's just an amazing archive of, of all this stuff. I mean, these days, because we're used to media, and talking about MP3s or, or, or uh, if you're talking about videos, uh, MPEG, MPEG videos, uh, you know, 1.2 gigabytes doesn't sound like very much, but in text terms, that is just loads. I mean, that's like a Library of Congress of text yeah, files. Much, yeah, you've set aside 10, you, you've, uh, you set yourself up for about a decade of reading. Yeah, if not um, more. But yeah. I, I'd, li- I'd like to get to the, to the documentary, because, sure. I, mean, I mean, what was it that, that moved you to go from, from documenting, you know, the, the, the BBS history in text to going out and trying to make a documentary? Um, there were a number. There were actually a number of factors. I had a film degree, which I just never used. I went to uh-huh. computers and video games because it paid better. Um, and I had that for um, you know a good number of years. I'm, I'm actually in my 30s, and um, I, I I try to think back to what originally caused it. And there was some inspiration from I'd seen a couple other little tech documentaries, not about bulletin board systems, but I knew it could be done, and I knew DVDs were getting cheaper to do, and so on. But what really got me was one day I had this stupid idea for a project. I get these ideas, and, I, and usually wisdom and reality stop me. But in this particular case, I said, gee, you know, I have all these numbers of all these bulletin boards. Wouldn't it be funny or interesting? Could I collate it? Could I have a list of every bulletin board there ever was? 
if I just go through my collection of a gigabyte of text, every time someone mentions the phone number, could I make a list off that? And I run it. I, I start running some preliminary scripts, and suddenly I have a 45,000 BBS list. And I'm like, my goodness. And, and it gets slash dotted. And suddenly I've got an 80. And slash dotted means it got posted to slash dot dot org, org. And, yeah. which is a very and, popular geek weblog. And, and usually when you get slash dotted, it means that like millions upon millions of geeks hit your website at once. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's an unforgettable experience. <laughs> and, and I've had it happen to me a number of times. And each time it's funny how it breaks something else. Like something breaks on my system. But it turns out I didn't tune something right. And if you tune something a little wrong, once 10,000 people are hitting it at once, oh. But, um, yeah, so, so it got really popular. And so people were sending me additions and sending me stuff. And it was cute. But what really interested me was that people started to write me. And they wouldn't just say, oh, here's the number of this BBS. They would say, here's the number of this BBS. And, man, what memories you've brought back from me. Let me tell you about them. And they would send me these stories. And I mean long stories. You know, paragraphs and paragraphs. Hmm. I used to run my bulletin board system. That's how I met my wife. That's where I got my first job. I had friends there. I've lost some of them, but, you know, that was a special time for me. Thank you for reminding me with these numbers. You know, the numbers made them remember. When it started to get, you know, after a few months of this, I thought, you know, there's this whole story here, and it's not going to be told. I mean, it, it, it was 2001 when I started this project, and I just thought, no one's going to do it. It's 2001. The money would have been in 1995. Yeah, right. That's when, they, that's when they would have done it. They're not going to do it. So by the time they're going to do it, it's obviously going to be when it becomes kind of a real curiosity, and it's going to end up being when half the guys are dead. It's going to be all described in Internet terms, so it's not going to be exactly the same, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like trying to define, you know, when people talk about medieval history, like it's a Renaissance fair, which right. is, you know, it's just not. So I said, you know, I got a film degree. How hard would this be? <laughs> and I, I go and I register bdsdocumentary.com and I start doing some research, you know, like who played a part in it and what was this. And, and I got slashed on it again, actually, uh, a lot more people. And I asked people, if you're interested in me interviewing you um, about this, about any aspect of it, write to me. And I got about 500 responses. Wow. So here it is four years later, or three and a half, four years later that I've been working on this project. I never expected it to be this big. I suppose it was going to be a year of shooting and a year of editing. It turned out to be, you know, two and a half years of shooting and a year of editing. How many um, interviews did you do? 205. 200, 205? Wow. 205. And, and how many different cities did you travel to? Um, easily 40 or 50. <laughs> in, I mean, I, in the U.S. Was, or elsewhere? It was one of these things where you find yourself saying to yourself, this is crazy, but you have to do it. And you end up going through it, and it's like, well, this is, you know, and I mean, these are places I've never been to. I mean, um, there were trips I took that were just not wise to take. You know, I, I would, um, there was a time I drove a thousand miles in one day to do one interview. There was the time that I drove from Chicago to Texas by way of Wisconsin, Missouri, and Kansas. Wow. Uh, to do, I did 11 interviews or 13 interviews in about a week and a half. Wow. You know, uh, I, I, I just have a minute or two, so I, want, I just want to ask you a couple more questions. Because <laughs> this sure. is a great story. I wish we had, we had actually more time and we would probably want to talk to you. But so, uh, about how far are you to completion then? Because I, I, I read your blog and I read, I read your website, so I see that you post uh, uh, periodically how you're moving through things. Right. It was supposed to be done in November, but the problem, the fundamental problem is that. Everything that's left to be done is going to be done, but I'm 
I am one person. Yeah. That's what it's turning out to be. There's a lot of stuff that I wish I could tell the other Jason to work on mm-hmm. while I was sleeping or while I was at work, because I still have a day job. Um, you know, it, what it comes down to is there are eight episodes. There are six that are finished. Two are almost finished. And how long is each episode? Each episode is between 20 and 50 minutes. Wow. I didn't find myself wanting to... You know, I didn't, I'm not making a miniseries, so they didn't need to each be an hour whether or not mm-hmm. the subject warranted it. Um, the subjects are... You know, there's, like, the beginning of the BBS. There's ones about the, quote-unquote, end of the BBS. There's ones about um, people who just ran them. There's one about um, the um, phenomenon known as Fidonet, which was a ad hoc network that was very similar to the Internet but with BBSs. Um, there's one about the BBS industry of the 1990s when they all wanted to sell it to you, and, and you know, they had conventions for that, mm-hmm. and that all went away. So it's, like, all these different... Um, episodes and uh, another thing that's been slowing it down is that it's got subtitles and it's got Spanish subtitles wow. and it's got director's commentary because I don't think I'm going to do this again. <laughs> you don't want to see it after you're done, huh? Yeah, a part of me, a part of me says, well, maybe I'll do another documentary on some other subject. But regardless, if I only do one, I want it to be great. So Let's it's see. three DVDs. It's got a thousand five hundred pictures on it that I took during the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got five and a half hours of episodes and another hour and a half of bonus footage so it's you know basically seven hours of stuff and when and, you're done and when you're done where, where will people be able to get it um people will be able to get it at bbsdocumentary.com and i'm going to expect to get it on amazon and the rest Great. um people can pre-order it if they want to um if they want to make that trust it's 50 dollars for the three dvd set um which i think i'm i'm working quite hard to make sure it's worth 50 bucks believe me um and one of the things that uh, uh, I'm really proud of with this thing is that um, I'm going to be taking all of the interviews and turning them into what I call cooked interviews. In other words, like if it's an hour, you take out the stuff where the guy's like, well, I can't hear anything, or what was mm-hmm. the question, and you end up with something between 20 or 40 minutes. And I'm just going to give that to archive.org. Wow. So, because well, I think it's on... Uh, what, what, I saw a documentary once about New York, and they had Donald Trump say something, and all he said was, skyscrapers, we did them first, and, you know, we do them the best. You want to hear that what else it. he said? Yeah, I'm like, I'm like, they must have interviewed him for, what, 20, 30 minutes? Right. I'll bet he had some really cool stuff to say. Well, I'm, I, I interviewed Ward Christensen for five hours, and I am his only video interview. Mm-hmm. And I happen to think it would be criminal for me not to make that available to people in some fashion. Cause wow. This is Ward Christensen talking about why he came up with the BBS, how he did it, what technologies got to him. You know, the most important thing, um, I guess, if, you know, this, this interview covers two separate parts of my life, so it's kind of confusing, but I would say to people out there who are listening, you know, the number one thing is not to wait for some sort of perfect utopian idea of when it's going to happen. You know, don't wait till you have your own uh, radio station and your own broadcasting to start thinking about broadcasting. You know, just whip out a mic, get a sound yep. card, and just start I agree. It. And if you got a movie, well, guess what? Yes, any movie you make, the video quality is going to suck compared <laughs> to any other movie that you look at. I look at documentaries, I'm like, gee, I'm not so good. And then I realize I spent $25,000 on it. That's about what they spend wow. on food yeah. in a given couple wow. of weeks. You know, I'm mean, sorry, in a, in, a, in a weekend. You know, it's going to look good but it's not going to be a multi-million dollar production and nobody was going to do it but if the content's good that's what matters. the content is great and the content and i shot it as well as i could and i think it looks very good but i'm not going to sit here and compare myself to a million dollar movie right. 
and and act like I did something wrong. And, you know, people are like, well, if I can't make a million-dollar movie, I don't want to do it. And you'll see people trying to scrounge up, right, you know, right. payment. The, the, the story that always gets me was there's one called uh, Step in Time. It's a documentary on the four guys who did all the music in the 60s. They're like, they worked for um, one right. of the record labels. Yeah, yeah for like Motown or something, yeah. And in it, the opening shot says, while we were waiting for funding, one of the men died. Mm-hmm. So this is dedicated to him, and they show the other three holding his picture up. And you don't want to like, wait why? that long. I'm like, why did you friggin' wait for right, right. you moron? <laughs> well, Jason, we're going to have to get going here because we're just about out of time. But I, I definitely want to talk it. to you as soon as the, the BB, uh, as soon as the BBS documentary comes out. Yes. So it's bbsdocumentary.com, correct? Yes, it is. Jason Scott, also of textfiles.com. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. No problem. As you can see, three years haven't, uh, haven't worn me down yet. Great. Well, good luck. Hey, thanks a lot. You're welcome. Bye-bye. And quickly, you're listening to Media Geek, and we're going to uh, read a couple more headlines. On February 10th, the FCC will be working on digital multicast must-carry rules. These rules will determine how and what number of digital TV channels cable systems will be required to transmit to subscribers. Current must-carry rules for analog TV require that cable systems include local full-power television broadcast stations that operate within a certain distance of a system's area. The transition to digital TV complicates matters because each digital TV signal can be subdivided into multiple channels, whereas with analog TV, each signal only has one channel. Broadcasters would like the FCC to require cable systems to carry all digital channels broadcast by station, while the cable industry would like to limit the number of must-carry channels to one per station. Senator Ted Stevens, chair of the Senate Commerce Committee, has told the FCC that he recommends the commission create must-carry for any digital channel that primarily carries public interest programming. On Thursday, February 3rd, FCC Commissioner Michael Copps met with reporters to discuss the must-carry issue, telling them that he intends to vote in favor of multicast must-carry, but that he is concerned the FCC has not sufficiently taken up the issue of the public interest responsibility of digital TV broadcasters. He suggested the commission conduct at least six meetings at locations outside Washington, D.C., so that people elsewhere would be able to weigh in on the issue. Cops also told reporters they believe the FCC will vote in favor of multicast must-carry rules, but much of the broadcast industry press has been reporting exactly the opposite. As a result, large TV broadcasters have been encouraging the FCC to delay its vote on the issue. Many broadcast executives have expressed the opinion that Chairman Powell is rushing the vote in order to kill the possibility of any multicast carry of any multicast must carry rules now and in the future. Uh, Drew, I believe you've got a, a pretty good headline here we'd like to get to uh, before the show is out. Sure, I can give you that. It's about our local Champaign-Urbana Community Wireless Network Project, or QWIN, has announced a major software release since the start of the project five years ago. QWIN aims to bring inexpensive and efficient broadband wireless networks to entire communities around the world using open source and free software. Release version 0.5.5, which will be available in the coming week of February 6th, can be downloaded in CD, image ISO, compact flash binary, or source code formats from www.cuwireless.net slash downloads. From, C- from QWIN's press release, quote, To set up a network, all end users need to do is burn a CD with QWIN software, put the CD in an old desktop computer equipped with a supported wireless card, and turn the computer on. Once the computer boots from the CD, the rest of the setup is completely automated, from loading the network operating system and software, sending out beacons to nearby nodes, negotiating network connectivity, and assimilating into the network. All the complicated technical setup is taken care of automatically. 
Unlike most broadband systems, QWIN's software builds a local intranet as well as providing for internet connectivity. Thus, a town that uses QWIN's system is also creating a community-wide local area network over which streaming audio, video, and voice services can all be sent. End quote. As we've discussed on Media Geek previously, QWIN has already set up a testbed of several network nodes across Urbana, which can communicate with each other using the software. Only one internet connection is required for all the nodes to have access to it. The devices used for this communication are rooftop-mounted boxes, which are little computers with antennae attached to them that can be updated and reconfigured automatically. This release marks a milestone in the project's development, which has become a full-time job for the core group. This is due to a grant they've received from the Open Society Institute and has made completion of the project for a final 1.0 release possible. For more information about QWIN, go to their website at www.cuwireless.net. That brings to a close another edition of Media Geek. We'll be back in one week with more news and views on our media environment. In the meantime, check out Media Geek on the web at www.mediageek.org. There you can read the Media Geek blog for news that can't fit onto the show, as well as download archive episodes of the program in MP3 in the open source Og Vorbis format. If you have any comments about the program, please send them to paul at mediageek.org. I'm host and executive producer Paul Reismandel. Our producer is Drew Tarico. Media Geek is produced live at community radio station WEFT in Champaign, Illinois. Some pre-production happens at the Urbana-Champaign Independent Media Center. Media Geek is also heard on KRFP, Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho, and on KQRP in Salida, California. And Media Geek is free to broadcast on your local non-commercial station, too. To inquire, please send email to paul at mediageek.org. Thanks for tuning in.